Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner. This week, I'm going to be hearing from Tom Blackmore, who is the grandson of David Maxwell Fife, one of the originators of the modern human rights framework. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion, and we're going to be hearing some amazing music as well. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to support the podcast, help make it sustainable, go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and consider giving a few pounds a month. Um, And also please do leave a positive review if you enjoy it on your podcast provider. Tom, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. We've been in touch for many, many years relating to David Maxwell Fife, and it's just a pleasure to have a chance to sit down and talk to you about him um, and about your relationship to him. So do, do you want to start, should we start that way around? Do you want to talk, first of all, give us a bit of a precy of, of who David Maxwell Fife was and what his connection was to human rights? And then we can move on to what connection he has to you. Yes, indeed. Well, he was my grandfather and unknown to me, really, because he died when I was seven, though I did know my grandmother very well indeed. And my relation to to him really began in 1998 when a Alan and Overy, a firm of solicitors in the city that had been his solicitors, got in touch with me and said, we have a series of boxes of your grandfather. And in their vaults, they had more boxes than I could imagine. But most precious amongst the things that were within them were the letters that had been exchanged between my grandparents during the Nuremberg war crimes trials. And they wrote to each other two or three times a week and kept each other up to date. And it was the first time I'd really ever got to know him as a person. He himself described himself as a uh, mid-20th century politician and lawyer and he felt he was very much a background figure but I'd say that he emerged into the spotlight between 45 and 50 when he was first prosecuting at Nuremberg and then went on to champion the Convention of Human Rights in the nascent Council of Europe and that legacy is what has intrigued and excited me over the, as you say, the many years <laughs> we've we've been working on it, one way or another. So, so should we start at the beginning? Where, where where was he born, and how did he end up becoming a lawyer? He was born to two teachers in Edinburgh in 1900. He described himself as a Victorian, though he only just got into that, but. He was born in Edinburgh. His mother, and this was important to him, was born up in Dornock in Sutherland. And that's where he spent all his childhood holidays. And it was a great passion of his mother's. And when he finally became became a a lord and went into the House of Lords, he took the name Kilmuir of Crick because that's a little tiny village just next to the Firth of Dornock up in Scotland. He didn't leave Scotland till he was 18. He was a scholar at George Watson's. They were not well off, but he worked and remained at the schools 
by dint of hard work, and only left when he went to take his place at Oxford University, where he studied classics without much distinction, and then had a decade in Liverpool, where he worked uh, as a criminal lawyer successfully, and most important of all, met my grandmother, Sylvia Harrison, who, for those who can remember the film, My Fair Lady was a sister of Rex Harrison, the actor who appears in that film. So they made quite a triumvirate, all of whom came from nowhere. And he and Sylvia and their, at that point, two daughters made their way to London in time for him to take Silk and then become an MP in the mid-1930s. And, and so so he became a, I guess, a Casey. And so King's Counsel, he was a sort of senior lawyer. And then he went into politics. Um, and how did he end up being a prosecutor at the Nuremberg war crimes trials? Well, at the end of the Second World War, um, the national government was disbanded and became a conservative government for a very short period of time, about six months. During the Second World War, he'd been made Solicitor General in 1943. And then in that post-war government, he became Attorney General. And as such, he chaired the London Conference, which established the war crimes trials as the chosen means of what to do with the Nazi war criminals. And he then got the uh, Conservative Party lost the next election in 1945. And he expected that Nuremberg was over, but Hartley Shawcross, who became Attorney General, was a friend of his from Liverpool and was well known to him. And he asked him to continue and to become his deputy in Nuremberg and to lead the team out there because Shawcross himself was tied up with the legislation the Labour government were looking to bring in over here at that time. And, and so he went out to do probably one of the most unique and extraordinary jobs that a, a British lawyer has ever done, I, I suppose, which is prosecute the, the, the top leaders who had survived the Second World War um, of the Nazi party. Yes. I mean, I think that he supported Robert Jackson, the American prosecutor, in the plans to hold a trial. Obviously, there was ambivalence about what to do with the leading Nazis in the UK after the war, but he came down in favour of the trial and having supported it and seen it as an extension of offering civilised natural justice to these leaders, he then went ahead and implemented it. And right the way through that trial, he saw, treated it very much like a criminal trial. He treated the Nazi leaders as criminals who required evidence against them, strong cross-examination, so that it could be established without any doubt that the, the crimes that had been committed were on record. And, and originally, I mean, it wasn't everybody's view, was it, that this trial should take place? I think originally Churchill wanted the usual outcome of wars, which is that the leaders of the, of the losing party would be hung. Yeah, there was, a, there was a lengthy document by Churchill calling all the leaders quizlings, and announcing that any of them could be killed on sight by anyone at any time, and that would be no crime. So, no, it wasn't the obvious 
thing to do. For the Russians, of course, that sort of trial was, again, something different in the sense that they were always in the business of show trials and, and trials that put people up in public before carrying out their execution. But Nuremberg wasn't just that in the end. It became something different in the hands of Lord Justice Lawrence, who was the chairman, and through the contributions, I think, from the British team and and others. It became flawed, imperfect attempt at justice. I've got um, here a book that I've... Um that I've got from my father-in-law. I don't know if you're, you've got this or not. The Nuremberg Trial by R.W. Cooper. Did, do you, have you come across this book? I have. Bob In the letters, Maxwell Five Cent, Bob Cooper yeah. was at the trials and he attended almost as often as Maxwell Five. Yeah, and, and, and it's got, there's a foreword um, from Maxwell Fife in the books from 1947. So he was sort of, he was a journalist who, I mean, Cooper was a journalist who attended and reported and produced this book that came out almost immediately afterwards. And in the foreword, essentially, the, Maxwell Fife gives his, um, gives his defence of the trial. It starts by saying there have been some arguments against having a trial and he mentions you know a sort of show trial or these are new crimes that have never been prosecuted before you know crimes against um peace war crimes and crimes against humanity um, and and one of the bits that i wanted to read out was um the first his first defense he says in my view these arguments against the trial must be rejected in the first place, the great majority of mankind are still working and hoping for a better world. They approach this desire from different standpoints of national tradition and political thought. All whom I've met, however, agree on one point, that justice, and indeed ordered systems of justice, are essential prerequisites of freedom, happiness and comfort. Without such systems, no man or woman can establish his or her rights, whether these rights must be claimed against fellow citizens or the state itself. Moreover, most of us are again hoping that ordered systems of justice may obtain in relations between state and state. It would, in my opinion, strike a blow at these hopes and their moral basis if the first important question of guilt or innocence was decided by the strong hand. And, and, I, and I just wanted to read that out because I mean, he, he makes a number of other arguments, but, the, but that's his first argument, and it's based in the rights individuals have against individuals and the state. And I thought that was very interesting in charting his journey through from the Nuremberg trials to the European Convention on Human Rights. It is. It's important to understand that he was a child of the Scottish Enlightenment. And as such, he was a believer in reasoned natural law. He genuinely believed that over and above there were rights and freedoms that were universal and which belonged to people as such. And that's one of the expressions of that sentiment. And over and over again, whether it's about the choice to hold the trial, whether it's about the conduct of the trial, whether it's about the championship of the convention, the underpinning faith in natural law inherited from from his Scottish roots, are very evident. And uh, we do actually look explicitly at, at a speech that he gave when he talks about the importance of that above and beyond simply 
local and national law. And, and the trial itself, um, although it was an, an extraordinary and unprecedented trial, it did have some of the features of an ordinary criminal trial where you have different advocates with different styles and some of them better at some things than others. Um, and I think, it, would it be fair to say that when it came to cross-examining Hermann Goering, um, the Americans didn't do the best job they could have done and it, it was left to Maxwell Fife to pick up the pieces. Certainly that is a narrative of the trial, perhaps less so in America. But I think that there were two distinctions, weren't there? The Americans got very hooked on the idea of proving conspiracy and wanting to prove that all these people were formulating these plans together. But one obvious feature of the Nazi regime was the leader principle, the dictatorship, so that they were all finally able to say, I did it because he told me to, because Hitler was recognised as a fascist dictator, and they all believed they were doing it at his instruction. The other thing was that Jackson had been out of the courtroom for a long time, and Maxwell Fife spent more time looking at the evidence, forensically going through it, and most important of all, when he was up against Hermann Goering, he didn't see a demon. He saw a very guilty criminal person. And his success in cross-examination, as recorded time and time again, was that he made the defendants feel guilty. And in doing that, clearly there was evidence enough to convict them before the trial started. But they shared a sense of their guilt when he was cross-examining. And that's what all the reports say. He, he understood their guilt. And so after the Nuremberg trials, um, he became involved in the drafting of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, how did that happen? How did he go from one thing to the other? Well, he gave um, speeches on his return, very much as you were saying about the Bob Cooper introduction, explaining why it was so important that Germany should, as a nation, be invited back into Europe swiftly. January 75 years ago this year, Churchill set up the uh, British European Union movement and he invited Maxwell Fife to join. That gave rise to the Congress of Europe that happened in The Hague, it'll be in 48. And Maxwell Fife attended that and joined the Human Rights, the Social Committee that was attending to Human Rights at that event, Churchill introduced the idea of a great charter of human rights. He, there was a speech at Hague where he introduced it. Maxwell Fife followed along. The following year was the first meeting of the Council of Europe where he and a man called Pierre-Henry Tegan teamed up and became the artisans of the convention. Pierre Henri Tijan is is the uh, or, or or I don't know if I pronounce his name right or wrong, but that's how I'm pronouncing it over the years. He and Maxwell Fife um, have my my two favourite quotes about the European Convention. Tijan talks about the, the the human rights being a sort of early warning system of you know I think it's the roads to the concentration camps are, are paved with the denial of rights or something to that effect. Um, and and Maxwell Fife is it's a quote i think from a, a blog that you wrote on the uk human rights blog 
about tolerance, decency and kindliness being at the heart of human rights, which I, I don't know whether that comes from a sort of Christian approach to human rights. I don't know whether it comes from his Scottish background. I, I don't know, but that seems to it's a repeated refrain for Maxwell Fife about where human rights come from and what the values underlying them are. Uh, well, it comes from Rupert Brooke, but um, of whom he was a great admirer and who is, we set a lot within the work that we've undertaken. He certainly wasn't explicit about the Christian roots. He was explicit about the classical roots of natural law and the importance of, and he was a classicist, and seeing that those qualities were foremost in his mind in everything he conducted himself. Um, so, yeah, I I'm, don't know if he was, was godly. He doesn't talk about it. His interest in it was about people and the reasoned natural law which enabled people to be more decent, kind and reach for the higher bit of themselves. In that quote that I, I read out before, he talks about freedom, happiness and comfort, um, which is also, you know, I, and, I, and I do like those, the, the reason I use that quote about tolerance and decency and kindliness is it, you know, like Eleanor Roosevelt, the, the, the small places closer, closer to home, it brings human rights down from this sort of lofty legalistic um, doctrine, which I think sometimes... It, it, human rights scholars can be guilty of down into, into the home and the hearth, which I think is, I, I often imagine, particularly if you were at the Nuremberg trials and you've lived through the second world war and, 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 and I guess the first world war as well, that appeal to decency, kindliness, comfort, happiness, you know, what, what else do people want than just a bit of peace in their lives? Um, and it's worth it. You know, it's worth putting in place these, these early warning systems or these legal structures or however you want to describe them to try and encourage that and, and give people a bit of peace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that peace and his appeal to the best side of human nature, which inspired him. Funnily enough, I've actually, as one of our extracts, going to have him saying that very piece at Nuremberg, followed by the, uh, the setting of the, um, the Rupert book, Poem the Soldier, which is what I wrote about oof, over a decade ago for you in the UK human rights blog, because his captivation with those qualities that he saw tied up with a poem, poet who's become very unfashionable, but at that time was very fashionable being Rupert Brooke, is a sort of melding of British values to the combination of the Scottish and the English, that desire for a peaceful life. It, it reminds me a bit, and, and maybe I'm pushing it too far, but it reminds me a bit of Tolkien's Hobbits, you know, that, uh, you know, what, what, what they, they're sort of caught up in these big events, but all they really want is a bit of, you know, nice food, somewhere to sit and smoke the pipe. And, and I can really, I can really understand that. Um, and I know that, that you know, Tolkien's ex war, war experiences were um, very important in his writing, but it just seems that, that 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 period of history, it's really important to remember what people had gone through and why they wanted to change the system, even change the world, to um, avoid this happening again. And if you extend your, your reference a little bit, 
when Sam Ganges returns to Middle Earth, and he is the one who's charged with rebuilding it after the nastiness has finally reached the hobbits themselves. That sort of sense of spring that happens at the latter part of the book is, I think, exactly what those who are involved in human rights were looking for through society. And remarkably, an awful lot of it succeeded because it was a germination. It was just a beginning of something. Um, which, yes, Tolkien covered. I think, funnily enough, C.S. Lewis covered it as well when he was talking about a deeper magic. I think there is something more that people are looking for rather than just legalistic ambitions. They're looking for something more than that. And, and I think they need it. Well, I mean, and just to for not to labour the point, but I've always loved that A.A. Milne, writer of Winnie, Winnie the Pooh, who is the just the most, you know, the, an, another Hobbit type character who just loves good food and friends and and the and, and the woods, um, was quite influential in the drafting of the Europe, the Universal Declaration. He he assisted in drafting a, a sort of precursor to the Universal Declaration, and I just love that. I love all those connections because it takes it out of um, the lofty heights. Yes, strangely enough, A.A. Milne, Maxwell Fife never owned the house because he never got round to it, but they did for a long time rent a cottage in the uh, Six Pine Trees Wood and knew A.A. Milne just around the corner. Oh, really? What's there in the Hundred Acre Woods? Yeah, in the Hundred Acre Wood. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, So let's... um, Let's move on to, well, just just before we do, before we move on to your commemorations of, of Maxwell Fife, can you just tell us what did he do um, in relation to the European Convention on Human Rights? Well, there were two, the first two meetings of the Council of Europe and the Parliamentary Assembly, of which he was a member in 1949 and 1950. And from very early on, inspired by Churchill's speech in 48 and their own vigour. He and Tijan worked closely together to put together a convention or a, a treaty which would be signed by all the members. This, just as Nuremberg attracted some bad press, the idea of a convention of human rights, the idea of a supernatural national court. These were not universally popular things at all. And the governments of the day were much less confident about them than those who were in opposition and in the parliamentary assembly. But in the end, a compromise was reached over those two years, so that by November 1950, a convention was signed. Maxwell Fife himself spent a lot of time on it. He drafted quite a lot of it. He had his colleague, John Barrington, who had also been with him at Nuremberg, but was then in his chambers, also work on it under his supervision. He consulted uh, Herschel Outerpacht once more, who once again had been at Nuremberg. And they chose to write quite a slim convention in comparison with the Universal Declaration, make a series of laws which were designed to grow. 
They were a simple expression of some ideas, but alongside that, they wanted to establish a court. So a bit like sowing a seed, those ideas could continue to grow and flourish in the years ahead. So it was actually set up as a very simple statement of rights and freedoms alongside a court in the expectations that the two things would grow together. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. And so let's move on to how you, as Maxwell Fife's grandson, have become a champion of his legacy. Um, do you want to tell us about what you've been doing over recent years, um, and particularly some of the music that we're going to hear? If you're going to become successful in your own lifetime with absolutely no background at all and no family history, which is the case with Maxwell Fife, the really important thing is not to die when you're young, because it means then that your history is not spoken. And he did die young. It's not surprising. He was in, he had his head bashed in during the Blitz, and he'd had a heart attack quite early on, as most of that conservative cabinet had. But he died in his mid-60s, which meant that unlike others who was his contemporaries, his story was not much told at the time. And therefore, when I came across these extraordinary letters and all his other papers, and they came into my possession, I'm the eldest grandson, I felt a strong need to work through them. And given my background in educational film and theatre, find a way of expressing them and, and taking them to a new audience. So a lot of the last 20 years um, has been spent sort of living out his last 20 years and explaining to people what it is he had done and how exciting some of that was and where he fell short. And it's been a very exciting and exhilarating thing to do. The music comes about because um, I've worked all the way through my life with Sue Casson. And when I first set up the Maxwell Fife, the Kilmere Papers website, I wanted to have a sort of backing track to that that enabled us to see inside his head. All the way through his writings, he mentions poems and other writings that inspired him. And I've always been sure that what I wanted to, people to hear was his words and the words that inspired him. But to find a vehicle for doing the latter, I found it enormously helpful if that was able to be set to music so that people would have time to reflect on the former, because he didn't write in the populist manner of Churchill. He said things that were quite dense and quite difficult. And there needs to be some downtime just to 
think about it and let it flow over you in the while the same words that were inspiring him. And that has been what we've been doing now for some years. And it's an unusual commemoration, but it's a living commemoration rather than pursuing a statue and or one of the more or writing a very, very long autobiography, a biography which nobody would read. Um, and so it's been a way of trying to keep that legacy alive. So should we hear some of the music? Yep. Okay. In which case, what I should mention is that in telling that story in the last 20 years, I've had two tremendous allies, uh, one of whom was Jonathan Cooper, uh, who was a supporter of this way back in 2007 or 8, and who agreed to hold an event at Gray's Inn where the letters were read out and the story was told, and who latterly, a couple of years ago, asked me to write what ended up being a very long essay for his uh, European Human Rights Law Review. And of course, the other great ally, Adam, has been you, because not only did you publish the first blog in 2010, but at the same time, you made the wonderful little winking Maxwell Fife video, which we adore, and kept the story alive with a much wider popular audience, which has been fantastic. Well, it's been it's been a pleasure, and and you know, it, it, I suppose one of the one of the things that one of the motivations that I and Jonathan Cooper um, probably shared was demonstrating, as Maxwell Fife does, that human rights were not a politically, you know. Um, they they weren't a left wing project for a start for a start and, and in fact the labor government were, were suspicious of these sort of civil and political but without the social rights um but you know i suppose more importantly they they were a universal project that attracted interest and support from across politics and if you actually look at the history look at the nuremberg trials look at what people wanted it wasn't about any particular political project it was about saving humanity from another catastrophic war and from another catastrophic genocide i mean that that's really what the animating focus of the founders of the human rights movement was it wasn't about pushing a particular political agenda at all i think that's absolutely true i think that better than that they also wanted to trust the future to build something better and i think that that trust in the future was embodied by the establishment of a court they knew perfectly well that this law was something that would change and we're not going to remain the same. Maxwell Fife, in his final speech, he only gave one speech at Denver, and he said, the law is a living thing. It is not rigid and unalterable. Its purpose is to serve mankind, and it must grow and change to meet the changing needs of society. And then a little later, in 1957, when 2,000 American lawyers came over here to establish the, um, the statue at Runnymede, he reiterated that in Westminster Hall 
saying that our lives, our laws are not static any more than society or human nature is static. Their roots, well grounded in history and watered by wisdom, are constantly putting out fresh branches and leaves for the comfort of mankind. Maxwell Five was a romantic of the law, and he really believed in it. And he thought that it could change direction from the middle of the 20th century and make things better. And funnily enough, the first piece I'd like to play is from a setting by Sue Casson of the Magna Carta. So should we have a little listen to that? Absolutely. reasons become a little dusty and old-fashioned in recent years, and which I myself should like to see restored to the position that it used to occupy. I refer to the doctrine of the law of nature. You may throw out nature with a pitchfork, said a Latin poet, who was also a good gardener, but she will always come back. the first extract so so tell us what what we were hearing there was was that the the text of magna carta being sung that was the text of magna carta set to music and you're hearing that heard by sung by sue casson and maxwell fire's great granddaughter and the words were spoken it was an extension of the speech that i just mentioned now by his great grandson robert um and the roots of this of his grounding in, in natural law. We use Magna Carta partly because he, he spoke on that occasion and partly because it, it, it is a root of that form of natural and common law that is established over a lot of years. And, and, and you talk about roots um, and, and being established, and that makes me think of the, the living instrument 
doctrine so the idea that the european convention is a living instrument and and do you think i I know you say your grandfather was a proponent of progressive law i put it like that i don't mean in a social way but in a in, in just in the sense that law grows to fit the societies um that use laws how do you think he'd feel about the where the convention has gone now and particularly given that he was quite a social conservative on certain issues i think he'd be absolutely astonished at what's happened and not astonished at all that it had happened i think he fully recognized the limitations i mean he kept writing about the limitations of what he'd be able to see. And in a couple of instances, once he became Home Secretary in the dirty business of government, he, he fell short in a, in a number of ways. He, I mean, he believed in capital punishment. He wrote a lot of pamphlets explaining why it was uh, the, the right thing. Um, my mother, who lived with him all the time, never believed in capital punishment, and I would never have countenanced it. But that's just change. And obviously, the, I don't think you'd be surprised that people have established equality before the law. But I think you'd be surprised, obviously, because he was a Victorian, about the way in which identity has become so prominent. But he would have absolutely acknowledged the need for everybody universally to get that equality before the law and equality of treatment. So, I'd, I mean, he wouldn't have understood, but he un- wouldn't have been at all surprised that an enormous amount of change had happened. That's a distinction, I think, that is difficult for people to understand. On the one hand, of course, he was socially conservative. He introduced things that were just not right, looking back on from today. On the other hand, he understood and wrote that he knew that change would come, change should come, And I think he believed in progress, rather like all the people we mentioned after the Second World War. There was a lot of people making statements about progress, that things could be better than they had been for the 30 years that they'd all just lived through. And in many ways, it has been. Um, And and we've already spoken about Jonathan Cooper, um, who very sadly passed away this year. Um, But I think it's, it's interesting that he um as somebody as a sort of you know leading advocate if not the leading advocate for gay rights and for lgbt rights um chose to champion maxwell five i mean he also has written about maxwell five's um attitude towards homosexuals um i'm just i was just reading a, a blog he wrote jonathan wrote on the oxford human rights hub where he referred to um, Maxwell Fife's views on homosexuals and, and obviously his role in the Wolfenden report not being implemented. Um, but you know, what, what did you understand why, why, why Jonathan decided to take that sort of dual view of him? I, I think that actually something Kevin, uh, Jonathan's husband, wrote was about Jonathan's capacity for love. And I think that he really was a universalist. He, he, he wanted these freedoms for everyone. He certainly wanted it. Obviously, 
for the um, the communities who he represented it. But he didn't want that exclusively. And therefore, he was able to hold the whole things together, which I thought was simply wonderful. And and he was right on both counts. <laughs> you know, I mean, he extremely wise about it because it allows the convention to to breathe into whole other areas, which I think is is fantastic. You know, yeah. I mean, when I first met him, I wasn't aware of his campaigning work because he was the um, chair of the Human Rights Lawyers Association. And he just loved the, the letters, which I showed him. I just archived and I showed him and he read all those. And they're love letters, you know. These were two people who were very much in love. They also tell the story of Nuremberg and, and what was happening immediately in post-war Liverpool. But they're love letters. And he liked that about them. And that's why he wanted Kevin to read them out at Gray's Inn and he wanted people to share them. Do you want to tell us about the second clip that you're going to play? Sure. This takes us back to our original human rights blog, which we enjoyed doing together. And at the very heart, as you said a little earlier, of, of the Maxwell Five philosophy is the quotation we're going to hear, which is from the end of The Soldier by, um, by Rupert Brooke. He reiterated and repeated it in speeches time after time when he got back and to summarise what he felt. And if this year I've been studying the whole of, of that speech, which is yet another chilling evocation of the nature of the Nazi organisations within the state. But he finished it, as we'll hear in his voice, this time from the archive, from the... Um, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum archive, which was digitized by Steven Spielberg. And so we'll hear a little extract from that. And then we'll hear a setting of the soldier by Sue Casson, setting the words of Rupert Brooke. When such qualities have been given the chance to flourish in the ground that you have cleared, a great step will have been taken. It will be a step towards the universal recognition that sights and sounds, all happy as a day, and laughter learned to friends, and gentleness and hearts at peace are not the prerogative of any one nation. They are the inalienable heritage of mankind. Thank you. 
give somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as a day, and love to learn to friends, love to learn to friends in hearts at peace and gentleness. Hearts at peace and gentleness. Hearts at peace under an English head. That's the setting of. The soldier, and and what is it about the the setting of the soldier that is what? Why is this central to the story? Why why include that? Well, if you uh, read the speech in Nuremberg, and indeed Neil Duxbury made reference to this in the short book he wrote about him, there are constant references to books, sonnets and the language of book sonnets. And he concluded it with that quote from the last three lines. So the important thing, of course, about the last end of the speech is that he says it's not just for one country, it's inalienable heritage of mankind. And he was trying to extend what in his mind was the very best of the gentleness you were talking about and and all of those qualities, which he, as an outsider, saw vested in the English. And he wanted that to be shared universally. And I think that was quite a big statement for Scott. Should we go to the third clip? Sure. Um, When he came back, he made a series of speeches. In 1950, he made a speech at the Athenaeum where he was explaining the relationships between uh, war crimes and human rights. And here is his great-grandson, Robert, reading from that speech, followed by a sequence where we've set yet another part of the sonnets under the title of safety. Most people approach the subject of war crimes trials fundamentally either as a cynic or an idealist. This is, I think, because in essence, the case for or against trying war criminals depends on that controversial subject, which has become succinctly known as human rights. Your cynic says, human rights, there are none. Your idealist, however, takes the view that there are certain rights and freedoms not created by lawyers, but to which mankind as such is heir and which cannot be alienated. It is a conception akin to the idea of the law of nature, which has had such a wide influence on relationships in past centuries Although now somewhat outmoded, the idea of fundamental human rights 
that's one in which I firmly believe. And that's that extract which explicitly ties together a number of the things we've been discussing. Should we come to the present day? Um, so, in a nutshell, the European Convention on Human Rights was incorporated into our local British law, um, our domestic law, through the Human Rights Act in 1998. And that Human Rights Act... I guess not unlike the the war crimes trials which were just being described in that clip um has always been controversial and there are skeptics or cynics and there are idealists certainly on the skeptic side is dominic raab the current justice secretary um although i wouldn't say on the cynic side i'd hope not but at the moment he is pushing and this government is pushing for the Human Rights Act to be turned into a Bill of Rights. And as is the case with any debate of this kind, Maxwell Fife's name pops up occasionally, either to say, if you're the if you're on the skeptic side, it's to say this is not what Maxwell Fife would have, would have wanted. And if you're on the idealist side, um, as I think I'm guessing you are, um, you're, it would be something quite different. So uh, how do you feel, having done all this work, about the current proposals? I feel, um, first and foremost, and Dreams of Peace and Freedom, the song cycle, is our submission, or rather the, the live screen version of it, will be our submission to Dominic Raab's consultation. Why? Because if he is going to say this is what Maxwell Fife thought, he should certainly have listened to what Maxwell Fife said in advance and to try and understand what was really in the mind of the artisans of the convention. That is very much what our story is about. And I think that he should take time to explore that. My biggest concern as about the things we've been talking about. It is that world of A.A. Milne and Tolkien who looked forward to progress. And if you take away the deeper magic or some understanding of the universal and inalienable nature of rights and you make them relative and about people's behaviour, then you are, in effect, taking them away. You're removing them as part of the, the legal mix. And I think 
well, I know Maxwell Fife would consider that a tragedy, and and obviously I I join him in that because who wouldn't want fundamental freedoms and human rights protected? I don't mean you can't ever look at them again. And in fact, in many ways, I would welcome younger people now looking at the convention once more and seeing exactly what needs protecting and looking after for the next 70 years. I don't mean you can't revisit them. In fact, you have to revisit them. What you shouldn't do is undermine them and undermine the very basis of them. And I think having read Dominic Raab's essay, that is what they seek to do. So obviously I'm, I'm not in favour of that. And taking the other consultation document, the gross, I'm hugely in favour. Indeed, Lily and Robert both wrote to Robert Buckland, who was very interested and engaged with them, um, about the need for education, about human rights. And obviously you are the maestro of the education of human rights. But I hope there's room for our more reflective material to give people time to think and chew and wonder and tackle these things just with a little more sensitivity and care. And and you're just talking about the the, the Gross review, um, Peter Gross, into the Human Rights yeah. Act, um, which one of the it, one of the recommendations was to develop a, an effective programme of civil and constitutional education in schools, university and adult education. Such a programme should particularly focus on questions about human rights and the balance to be struck between such rights and individual responsibilities. And certainly, it, it, I've, I've often thought that the one of the failures of the Human Rights Act was, was it wasn't, contrary to the original plan, in fact, it wasn't accompanied by a programme of civic education. It wasn't embedded culturally in the way it, it could have been. Um, and part of me thinks if it had been, we would at least be on a slightly more enlightened playing field um, because all of the, I, I, as you'll probably know, my critique and the reason I've done as much as I've tried to do in public education on human rights is because the vast majority of publication public education on human rights has been done by the Daily Mail and the Sun. Um, they, they are the they are the primary educators. The, the ground has been ceded to them, and they have a very particular, cer- certainly cynical view, not a sceptical view, but a cynical view of human of human rights. And and my and one of the reasons I've really was was taken by Maxwell Fife's story is because he is the link. He's the living link. Or he's not living anymore, but he was the living link between the Holocaust, the Second World War, the Nuremberg trials. And the European Convention, which to me is all part and parcel of the same story. It's can't, you can't tell the story of human rights without understanding the story of the, the, the almost destruction of the world. Um, you know, that, that was what was being, that was the context. Um, and if you decouple the story, I think exactly as you say, if you make it sort of contingent, you say, well, these are these are just more laws, you know, more restrictions or just, um, you know, contingent on societies. They, you know, we can change them according to the political winds. Then you miss the point of the origins of these ideas and these values, which was meant to sit above 
politics and not not to be democratically unaccountable not to be sort of you know unchangeable but certainly to be um more embedded in society than 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 any particular government or trend no i think um i think that's exactly right i think the most frightening thing that people say is all that can't happen again because it clearly can because it kept happening over the, the space of 30 or so years and that was only 70 or so years ago complacency i think is terribly dangerous in the face of the future there's every reason to be optimistic but there's never any reason to be complacent and the idea that the stories you're telling are things that couldn't be repeated and nonsense of course it can be and as a historian which is what i am if i'm anything it they they probably will be and the only way to fight them is by holding on to those things that show faith in the future and belief that things will continue to progress and that they won't be pulled back. Now, that's rough and ready. There are always things you can do better, and all this law is quite new. But I assume that, for example, Dominic Raab is not in the business of trying to withdraw the equalities law that has stemmed, at least in part, from the Convention of the Human Rights Act, he's very selective about what he he's interested in reforming. But those reforms are enough to undermine the, the faith, if you like, in human rights. And I think we have to go on believing. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, where can people find the full pieces that you've played clips from or see them live well what obviously we'd love to be doing is to be performing for people and we look forward to doing that as soon as we possibly can clearly the pandemic prevented that from happening uh for the most part however what we did do was to create um a film recording the recording and a live stream all of which are accessible from our website, which is www.thehumansinthetelling.org. Thehumansinthetelling.org. And I'll include a link to that in the Great. show notes. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure to speak. There you go. Hey! Thank you so much to Tom Blackmore for a really interesting discussion which I hugely enjoyed. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law in their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. Please do chip in a few pounds at www.betterhumanpodcast.com if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it, and also leave a positive review on your podcast provider. Thank you very much. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>